You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We have our notes available through our bulletin Google Drive folder. You can access our notes uh, that way if you'd like to. We've been in Revelation chapter 20 the past couple of weeks now. Told you that it's one of the more challenging chapters to interpret because there is such debate about the contents of chapter 20. When does it happen? What exactly is happening when it does happen? Um, and, and we've been trying to work through some of those questions and trying to give some biblical answers uh, to those questions. I think my biggest desire is to instill in, in you a desire to know what you believe about this chapter and to not be content uh, with not knowing, right? Um, when we were sitting around at Snowbird talking about eschatology and uh, one of the youth pastors kind of interjected and said that he was actually applying, I don't know if it was a, a ministry job or if it was a teaching job, um, but the, the topic of eschatology came up and he actually believes that he ended up not getting the job because he hadn't really worked through his eschatology and couldn't confidently answer some of those questions that were posed to him. And then later on, he kind of said that um, he, was, he didn't really feel a sense of urgency to know exactly what he believed about some of these things, that uh, because it was confusing, because it wasn't really clear, because there was good men on, on, on all different angles of, the, of this perspective or different perspectives, that there wasn't necessarily an urgency on his part. And I was very quick to kind of jump in and interject what we had seen in chapter one, right? That there is great blessing for the reading of Revelation, for the studying of Revelation, for the comprehending of Revelation. That we shouldn't shy away from really trying to understand Revelation because Jesus says there's great blessing in knowing this, right? And there's also uh, great encouragement that comes from working through eschatology. We've seen that from other passages of scripture where, where God has told us certain things about the future with the intent of encouraging us, which then allows us to turn around and encourage others as we share what we believe, right? But then there's also that aspect where I told you just working through some of these issues, it forces us to to do some things that are very healthy and very sanctifying for us in our walk with Jesus, right? We talked about when you look at the premillennial view and you're working through some of the arguments for premillennialism, even if you don't hold the premillennialism, it, it encourages you and reminds you that God has to keep his promises, right? Like premillennialism is known for the fulfillment of promises to Israel in the Old Testament. Well, God has made some real promises in the Old Testament to Israel. How do we reconcile what is happening in the New Testament with those promises? Because God keeps his promises, so it forces us to, to remember that as we study eschatology. It forces us to be encouraged that the, that the gospel works, right? The post-millennialists would tell us that the gospel will go forth, that the gospel will save the nations, and because Jesus' authority and all that authority that he has goes with us, Great Commission, all authority has been given to me, and I go with you, make disciples, therefore, of all nations, the postmillennialist says, man, we should expect the gospel to work, and we should expect the gospel to work. Even if we're not a postmillennialist, even if we don't expect the whole world to become Christianized before Jesus comes back, we should expect the gospel to work. We should not be surprised that if we share the gospel, people will respond to the gospel and be saved. It was great to hear a youth pastor around the fire one time while we were sitting there testifying to the fact that he had had a couple of his students come to Snowbird this week and had made professions of faith. 
Now, are those real professions or not? I don't know, but typically that's the first question that comes to mind, right? Oh, I've heard that before, like kids went to camp and got saved. Probably not. Like, like, like we shouldn't really be in that camp where we're saying probably not because in some way we think the gospel isn't effective today, right? Like the gospel works, we should expect it to draw people to Christ. The amillennialist view, even if you don't hold to it like I do, it forces us and reminds us to be hopeful about the second coming of Jesus, that the believer is to hope in Jesus's imminent return, right? Last week we saw in Revelation chapter 20 some specifics about the millennial reign, about the defeat of Satan. I told you that No matter what view you have on Revelation 20, the Bible teaches us very clearly that Satan's influence has been reduced at the first coming of Jesus. Even if you believe that Satan is going to be bound further in the future, we have to say that he's been bound in some aspects right now because Scripture testifies to that outside of Revelation, that his his influence has been reduced in such a way that the nations are coming to Christ in ways they did not in the Old Testament. The Bible teaches that because of that, it's allowing for a great expansion of the gospel and that while death is still present for the Christian now, there's a great deception to come and we can enjoy a spiritual resurrection through salvation and death while hoping for an even greater resurrection in the future. And so we talked about the fact that you may not believe in Revelation 20 that people are experiencing the first resurrection right now, that that's something to happen in the future. But we do have to admit that Scripture is very clear that when we come to salvation, when we come to Jesus, it is pictured as a type of resurrection. And that as believers, when we die, we don't just go to sleep, right? Like we get to go be with Jesus. And that too is pictured as a type of coming to life or a type of resurrection. And so um, there's great things to learn and great things to be reminded of in studying Revelation 20. No matter what perspective you end up taking about when these, type of, when these events happen, what they actually look like when they do happen. We can rejoice over the satanic limits that we see in Revelation 20. We can embrace the gospel now to avoid the second death that is to come that Revelation 20 talks about. And we can hope in the failure of the great deception because in Revelation 20, we see this great gathering of the nations to wage war against Christ and his church. And we see that completely thwarted, right? Like we see that Satan's plans are completely squashed, that Jesus gains the great victory. I've been challenging you for weeks now, encourage you to establish a plan Make some type of effort to solidify these things in your own mind, in your own studies. Um, I've given you resources. I hope that you're utilizing some of those resources and really trying to not just believe certain things because I've told you, but to really work through such things to where if you ever find yourself sitting around a campfire and people start talking about the return of Jesus and seem confused about some of those topics, that you can talk and share some of the things that you've learned in your own personal studies. All right, today we talk about what's called the Great White Throne Judgment comes from Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. So I want to read our text for us right now. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's summary sentence for today. The final judgment will force everyone to give an account for how they lived their life, with believers being granted eternal reward because of their faith in Christ. 
and unbelievers being eternally punished due to their sin and guilt. For our kids, when God judges, he will save those who trusted in Jesus and punish those who did not for their sin. There's a lot of debate uh, based on how you view Revelation 20 as to whether or not believers are even present for the great white throne judgment. Um, the premillennial view especially would say that this is, this is just for unbelievers, that this is not for believers. The way we're going to approach it, obviously, is from the amillennial view because we've been seeing all of Revelation that way. But what I want you to understand is that no matter what perspective you take, the things that we're going to say again this week are true regardless of your millennial view. Because if you're a premillennialist, you're going to say that believers aren't present for this judgment, but they are present for a separate judgment where the exact same things happen at that judgment that I'm going to relay happen to believers at this judgment. Okay, does that make sense? So everything that we're going to say today is true, whether you think they happen at separate times or whether you believe they happen at the same time, because that's really what the issue is. There's the Bema seat judgment, which premillennialists would say that comes from 2 Corinthians, and we'll talk about that passage they would say that's the, the judgment of reward for the believer. The great white throne judgment is the judgment of punishment for the unbeliever. What I'm going to suggest is that they both just happen simultaneously at the same time, that there's not separate Bema seat judgments and great white throne judgments. There's just a final judgment. But again, you're welcome to separate those based on your studies from Scripture. But what I'm going to share with you um, is, is true regardless of what view you take. If you want to split it, that's fine. If you believe Scripture teaches that, that's fine. But what I'm going to share with you today doesn't change if you do split it, okay? We're just saying these happen simultaneously. If you're a believer, you're going to experience the great white throne judgment one way, the way the Bema seat is described in 2 Corinthians. If you're an unbeliever, you're going to experience it a different way, what's highlighted for us here in Revelation chapter 20. Okay, so you don't have to tune me out because you may believe something different. Everything that I'm going to say today is applicable no matter which view you take. Okay, the final judgment for the believer, maybe the Bema seat, for the unbeliever, maybe the great white throne judgment, or maybe it's the same thing. It will force everyone to give an account for how they live their life with believers being granted eternal reward, unbelievers being granted eternal punishment. Okay. I do, I, I do, I did share with you that I, I do believe that this is the same thing this is one judgment um i do believe that believers are present here because the language in revelation 20 to me seems to point towards a general judgment for all mankind including believers at the end here you've got anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire which seems to imply that some people's names were found to be written in the book of life right that this book of life is being used as an element of of record keeping it's being used in the judgment of those who are standing before the throne so I do think that there is a general judgment for all mankind. We have being pictured here the old creation kind of passing away, making way for the new creation that's to come. In Revelation 21.1, we see, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I think we get that idea in chapter 20, verse 11, where it says, The present earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So we're starting to see the original creation kind of rolling backwards and being done away with to make way for that new creation that we'll see um, as we get into Revelation chapter 21. Uh, what we find here, I think, ultimately in this final judgment is unbelievers receiving punishment and believers receiving reward. There's a separation that is occurring here between those who have followed Christ and those who have not. Revelation chapter 11, verse 18 
The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. We saw there that we pictured that as the second coming of Jesus and the final judgment as well. And you have the picture there that the destroyers of the earth, the, the people who have raged against God, they get God's wrath, right? They're being judged and punished, but there's a reward for the servants of God, the prophets of God, the saints of God, those who have feared his name. We have that same element there, both small and great, that we find in Revelation chapter 20 as well, right? That, that all people are going to be included in this. Nobody's exempt from it. Um, it says in verse 12, I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne, right? And you could say, well, what's the purpose of this judgment? We already kind of, we already kind of know at that point who's saved and who's, who's not saved, right? Like is, is the purpose to determine who really is a Christian or not? And I don't think that's the case. I think what we have here at the end of time is God's glory being put on display, God's glory is being put on display in the aspects of his holiness coming forth as God's wrath is being poured out on unbelievers. God receives glory for his proper response to sin. But God is also going to be glorified in the love uh, of who he is being demonstrated towards believers as grace is poured out upon those who have accepted Christ, right? Nobody's getting entrance into the kingdom of God because of what they've done. Right? Like there's no amount of good that allows somebody to come to, to come to, to, to eternity with Jesus. Right? It's completely based on the work of Christ. So as God judges the unbeliever, he is glorified because his wrath is very proper in response to man's sin. He is also very glorified as he bestows love and grace and mercy upon the believer, not because of anything that he's done, but because of all that Jesus has accomplished for him. I don't know about you, but as a, as a young Christian, a a young child growing up, I was always very fearful of the final judgment, even after I came to Christ, because I always had this picture of, of sitting in a, in a movie theater with, with everybody that I ever cared for sitting around me. And then Jesus standing up in front and saying, okay, we're going to now play Adam's life. And we're going to highlight every mistake, every sin that he's ever committed, because that's what we're here for. We're here for Adam to be held accountable for what he has done in this life. And then as soon as we're done with Adam, we'll go to the next person, right? And so like, as I, as I pictured this growing up, like just fear kind of set in as to how could I ever look forward to this day? You know, like how could I ever anticipate and long for the day where we get to all go into the movie theater and get to see all of my known sins as well as all of my secret sins be put on display for everybody to see. And my perspective has changed over the years as I've looked at scripture and seen really what scripture I think has to teach about this day, particularly from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee." Man, there's this picture that we, we are to groan and long for the day of resurrection, right? That while we're here at home in this tent, this, this earthly body, we groan and long for that heavenly body. But how can we do that if, if there's this great day of judgment that's to, 
to come upon us for all of our, our secret sins. It says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We'll talk more about this as we get into it, but I certainly believe that that we are to long for this day where we appear before Jesus, that it's not to be something that we kind of cringe about or, or kind of shrink back from, that we're to, we're to be very confident about this final day of judgment based on the work of Jesus Christ, okay? Because this day is not going to be a day for our salvation to be judged, right? Because we can't work for our salvation. So this is not a day that we have to, to, to really be nervous about because it's on this day that we'll find out if we're a Christian or not, right? Like that's not what the purpose of this judgment is. It's also not to judge our sin, And we're going to see some passages later that make it very clear that we are not going to stand before God one day and be judged for our sin as believers. Instead, the picture is we are going to be commended. We're going to be commended for the the work that he did in us to where we remained faithful to him. Right? And and so really, even in our commendation, it's it's an opportunity for God to get the glory because anything we offer back on that day of judgment, hey, here's my faithfulness, here are my works, my labor, my deeds that we've seen in Revelation go with us. They're really a result of what Christ did in us uh, through the Holy Spirit, right? We work out our salvation, but it's God who wills and works in us to do those things. And so again, it's ultimately a day for Christ to be glorified because even as we stand and, 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 and are commended for our good works, it's ultimately a nod back to Jesus who accomplished those through us. It is a day that I believe we are to look forward to and we'll continue to see why as we get into our text. All right, number one in our notes today, we are to rejoice for a holy judge who knows us. Rejoice for a holy judge who knows you. Verse 11 says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you have this picture and again, Revelation is very symbolic. So I don't know if these are literal books or not. And I don't know if we're all literally standing there bodily before him or not. I don't know how that plays out, right? Like, I don't know how that works because when I think about the amount of people spatially that it would look like for, for everybody that's ever existed to stand before God, like that, that kind of blows my mind to even think how we could all fit in a throne room before Jesus. And, and maybe that's just where God's plans are bigger than our plans and he's able to work that out. But the picture that we're to see is us standing before God, a holy judge, Right? But what Scripture tells us in other passages, and for our kids, if we're Christians, we can rejoice because Jesus will be our judge, and that's the next point for our adults, is that Jesus will serve as our judge. He will serve as our judge. He's the one who is sitting upon the throne, and that should offer us great comfort. John chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All right, so God the Father has given the right to judge to his Son, Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Another passage that reveals the identity of our judge. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. 
Because he, the Father, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right? He has chosen Jesus, his son, to be the one who executes the judgment. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Right? Jesus is the one who sits upon the throne. He is the one who will act as our judge. And this is great comfort. It, it ought to be great comfort to us in knowing that the one who knows us will be the one to pass judgment, right? I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a, in a really uncomfortable situation before and to have some of that discomfort alleviated because you see somebody that you know, right? Imagine that you're, imagine you're speeding down the highway and you see blue lights behind you and you get pulled over and you know this could be really bad and then the policeman walks to your, your, your car and it ends up being Rob Turner, right? Like, <laughs> The whole time you're just like, oh no, like what is going to happen? And not to say that because you know Rob, it's automatically going to mean that you don't get a ticket. But man, I think there would be an, an unbelievable amount of relief to roll the window down and see Rob standing there and knowing that even if he gives you a ticket, he's going to be able to answer all of your questions about what this is going to mean for you moving forward. Right, like Rob's gonna probably be able to tell you on the spot, this is probably how much it's going to cost. This is what you're going to have to do to, to go appear before court. Like, like, all that kind of discomfort really gets alleviated because Rob's the one standing there. Like, there's some type of comfort in knowing that, man, I'm being looked at now by somebody who I know, right? There was a, um, I guess it's been probably a decade now, um, our family was invited to a anniversary celebration for somebody in my dad's family. And so we were invited to this church, and it was a summer day, a hot summer day, right? And we're supposed to go to this church, and we're supposed to, to walk in and, and celebrate this anniversary. But in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, it's summertime. It, it's like a family reunion. Nothing really special is needed as far as how we dress, right? Like, I didn't look at the actual invitation, but I just assumed, like, it's summer day. It's, a, it's like a, a family get-together. Why would I not wear shorts and a polo? Like, I even thought, man, I'm going to put a polo on just so I can look a little bit nice. I walk in, and no kidding, like, the first person that greets me is in a tuxedo, Right, so I'm walking into the church. I'm a little bit late, but it's kind of a, not really a set starting time. My, my dad's cousin's walking down the hallway, and like I can see the disdain on his face because he's the one that like planned this whole thing. He's, he's like decked out tuxedo, and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> like, like I have missed something, right? But in the back of my mind, I'm correct. Like you're dressed similar to, to the way, right? In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, Adam McLeod is here, and I know he's wearing shorts too, right? So I've got to find Adam McLeod so that I can sit next to somebody who knows me and knows that my intentions were not to be disrespectful, right? Because my, my cousin hugs me and like says some stuff in my ear, like basically like, I really hate you for showing up this way. Like, like I put all this together for my parents and this is what you, you think of this event. And I remember just being mortified. I walk into this big fellowship gathering. Everybody's wearing tuxedos and suits and I mean, tie and shirt was like the minimum that anybody else was wearing. And everybody's just kind of staring at me and looking at me and I see Adam McLeod and it's like, I gotta get to that table, right? Like, I just wanna sit next to Adam McLeod. I don't think either one of us got up the rest of the time, right? Like, our, our wives were going to get food for us. Like, we didn't want anybody else to see us, but there was a comfort level in, hey, this guy knows me, right? That's what I see when I see Jesus on the throne. Here's somebody who knows me, who gets me. This isn't me showing up in heaven and some angel being uh, designated as the judge who doesn't intimately know me. 
Like this is Jesus, right? So when I step forward, this great white throne, I see what is described as my friend in Scripture, right? My, my Savior in Scripture. One who intimately knows me, cares for me, gave his life for me. This isn't a stranger. This isn't somebody who's going to look at me and, and know that, man, I failed a lot as a follower of Jesus and, and question my salvation. This is Jesus. And we can rejoice as we look at the final judgment in knowing that it's Jesus who sits on the throne, right? It's one who knows us that's standing outside that car when we get pulled over, right? There's a comfort level in knowing it's Jesus who sits upon that throne. And number two, Jesus will respond justly with proper standards. He will respond properly, justly with the right type of standards, What we see here in Revelation 20 is books being opened, right? A book of deeds and a book of life. And these books will be used in the judgment. There's great comfort in knowing that that it assures us that that this judgment will be fair, right? Like like accurate record keeping has been kept as to to what, uh, what has been done, what is true about every single person that stands before this throne. Like the, the overwhelming idea here is that proper record keeping is, is at play. We don't have to worry about, man, you don't know this, you didn't know this, you didn't have this information, you weren't aware of this, right? Like all that is on display with these books being opened. It assures us that justice and proper standards are being used. I think what we also see here and in another passage of scripture is that there's gonna be various standards used to ensure that the judgment is proper. In our discussion groups this morning, we talked about whether or not is, is hell gonna be worse for some than others? Is heaven going to potentially be better for some than others? I certainly think scripture uh, alludes to the fact that hell is going to potentially be worse for some than others. That that a a stricter level of judgment is going to be used for some people versus others. And then the potential punishment that comes from that is going to be worse for some than others. And and I think scripture alludes to that in some different places. First, we've got James chapter 3 verse 1. James chapter 3 Verse one, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why would greater judgment come upon a teacher than a non-teacher? Well, because a teacher has great influence over people, right? A teacher will influence the way that certain people think and act. And if that teaching is not correct, well, now I've misled people. Now I'm a false teacher who has caused people to believe wrongly and potentially act wrongly, right? And Jesus says there's a greater judgment for those people who sit in those positions of influence. We're not told anything specific about what that, that, that greater standard of judgment is, that greater strictness that will be used, but it's certainly mentioned there. We also find in passages that the amount of knowledge or revelation that an individual has will play a role in his judgment. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. There's certainly um, some strong words there by Jesus for those that have rejected 
the, the, the signs and the works that he had done in their cities in comparison to cities that had never seen that done. He says it's going to be worse for you because you've seen it and because you've rejected it. Mark chapter 12, verse 38 And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. These are guys who should know better than to act in such a way. And because they are still choosing to act this way, Jesus says there'll be greater condemnation for these folks. Luke chapter 12 Verse 47, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Again, the idea here that the the revelation, the knowledge that one has and how they respond to that knowledge is a huge criteria in how God chooses to judge. Romans chapter 2, verse 12 is another, another familiar passage that mentions this. Um, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This, again, is talking about that, that hypothetical man who, who lives in Africa but has never heard of Jesus. What happens to him, right? He'll be judged. He'll be judged by the law that's written on his heart. Romans says, not by the law that he did not have, but by the law written on his heart. The key piece there is that the law written on his heart is enough to condemn him, right? But maybe the condemnation that he comes under is less than one who has the full revelation, right? Anytime I speak, I've I've always spoke in context where I can tell the hearers, you're in the more responsible group, right? Like you don't get to sit and be an unbeliever in this group and say, all right, so I'm going to go to hell, but it won't be as hot because of who I am. No, like we live in a society and a culture where we have been exposed to the gospel. We have ample resources available to us. We've we've got ample churches available to us. If anybody's gonna receive great condemnation, it's gonna be people who live in our society who have rejected Jesus, right? Like we've got massive amounts of revelation, massive amounts of communication given to us about the gospel. If we've rejected it, if we've turned our back on Jesus, if we've said no to the gospel, man, we are under great condemnation for that rejection. But Jesus certainly seems to allude to the fact that, that those who who have had lesser revelation may receive lesser condemnation. But again, each one of these passages is not to is not meant to minimize what somebody else is going to get, but actually to maximize what the hearer that is hearing that message will receive, right? Like he's trying to pass greater condemnation upon those who are currently rejecting the gospel message. He will be impartial in his judging, which is another great encouragement to us. He won't show partiality. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35 So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Right? Like like Jesus' judgment, Jesus' verdicts of guilty, not guilty, man, it doesn't it doesn't see race, it doesn't see gender, right? Like it it's no partiality in his judgment. Right? People from any nation, any tribe, any tongue that choose Jesus will be made acceptable to God. No partiality in the ways that Jesus judges. Same is true in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 says, 
If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's a father, a a God who judges without uh, partiality. A huge encouragement to us. We rejoice because the one who sits upon that throne is one who knows us. He's one who knows everything. He's got the books in hand. He's got every, uh, every opportunity for record keeping made available to him. And he judges without partiality. He uses proper standards in his judgment and will most likely divvy out punishment based on those standards in an appropriate way um, to where someone who, uh, who deserves greater punishment will receive it, right? Number two, labor for a thorough judgment of works. We ought to labor hard. We ought to work hard knowing that a thorough judgment of works is coming. For our kids, if we are Christians, we should live like it. The idea here is that when we stand before Jesus, our works will be put on display, and they should be put on display in such a way that they show us to be a Christian. They are the fruit of our labors. They are the demonstration of our faith. And what we find here in this passage is that, one, every human will be judged. Again, whether you split these judgments up or combine them all into one, at some point, every human being will be judged. God is aware of every human being, and all come from everywhere to face the judge, right? Like nobody gets left out. Back in Revelation 20, as people are being gathered before the throne, it says that death and Hades gave up the dead. It says the sea gave up the dead who were in it. I mean, these are people that, that are like lost at sea. You could say the, you could say the same for uh, um, uh, people that, that were lost on land as well. Right, like people whose bodies never came home from war, right? People's bodies that never came home from um, from voyages. Ships, uh, ships were sunk at sea and they were never found, right? Like like those bodies are found on the day of judgment. They come to life. They come to life. They are raised to life and they stand before the throne. So all people come from everywhere to face the judge, and everyone will give an account, the great and the small. We've seen that phrase, great and small, used for believers and unbelievers already in Revelation. There's four passages that use that phrase, Revelation 11, 18, Revelation 19, 5, and then Revelation 13, 16, and Revelation 19, 18. All four times, it's either talking about believer or unbeliever, and it's meant to convey the idea that it includes all of them in that group, right? Here, we have it applied to mankind in general. Everybody, great and small, will appear before God. We see death in Hades handing over the dead. It's a reminder to us in Revelation 1 that Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades, right? And so they don't get to, to discuss whether they're going to release the dead back to Jesus. It's just, it's an obligated thing for them because Jesus holds the keys. So every human will be judged. And then number two, every act will be considered. God is aware of every human act. It's pictured as being recorded in these books. Therefore, God's judgment will be based on what man has done. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we've already read. I'll read it to you again real quick. All of our deeds will be looked at. It says, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And here's the the thing that we need to all realize is that 
either the book of deeds is going to be used against us or the book of life is going to be used for us, right? And so if we, if we err and fall on the side that says, you know what, I think on judgment day, my good works are going to outweigh my bad works and I'll be justified before the creator, we, we fall well short of what it would take to, to be justified by our works, right? Because Galatians three ten through 11 says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So really there's another book that could be brought into this discussion. The book of deeds, what you have done, had better measure up perfectly to the book of the law or else you're in trouble right? Like it has to be perfectly kept or else you're under a curse according to God's word. Every deed will be used to show who we really are. Are we a believer or an unbeliever? Are we a Christ follower or not? Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 14 says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Matthew chapter 12 Verse 33 says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." Right? What he's saying there is that our words, our actions will show who we really are. Right? We know that our words don't actually justify us from a salvific standpoint. Right? We can't be saved by our good deeds because we fall short. We've already seen that. Right? But our words will justify us in the sense that we claim to be a Christian, and now before everybody, our deeds are put on display to show that we really are a Christian, right? that our life has been changed. <laughs> that we have produced the, the fruit of the Spirit. We will be shown to be a true believer by the deeds that are put on display. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 is another lengthy passage, but it's the separation of the sheep and the goats, right? Like Jesus calls all the nations before him. They're separated, sheep and goats, based on how they ultimately have treated Jesus, right? Like those that, that took care of him when he was hungry, those who cared for him when he was sick, those who visited him in prison. And they're gonna say on that day, when did we do those things for you? Right? If you did them to the least of these, you did them to me. Right? And so Jesus is very clear that our actions show whether we're in the sheep category or the goat category. What have we done with our life? Does our life demonstrate a life of following Jesus or not? Separation occurs in that passage because of it. Every human is judged, every act is considered. Number three, every believer will be rewarded graciously. Believers will reap based on the motivation and action that they have demonstrated in their life. There will be great reward for the believer, and that will probably vary believer to believer. Jeremiah seventeen ten, I, the Lord, search your heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Right? God looks at our heart, our mind. He looks at the, the ways, the things that we have done, and he rewards according to the fruit that he finds there. 1 Corinthians 3.8. 1 Corinthians 3.8 says, He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. Ephesians chapter 6, 
verses 5 through 8 says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Man, God wants to honor our effort, wants to honor our hard work, wants to honor our correct motivation, but doesn't necessarily honor that here on this earth, but will most certainly honor it in the earth to come is the implication of that passage. Believers will be acknowledged for their faithfulness. That's not going to go unnoticed on the day of judgment. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God's not going to overlook it. He's not unjust as to not reward it. This is where it's hard to say, like, well, what does that mean for, for heavenly purposes? Does that mean some people get a better heaven than others? And I've heard it described by multiple theologians that the best way to view it is that everybody experiences the fullness of heaven based on the capability they are given to experience it. And so some's, some people's fullness may be more full than other people's fullness, but everybody experiences a full experience of heaven based on the capacity that's given to them. All right, think of it in terms of if you took, and this is a, this is a poor explanation, but I see some confused looks on people's faces. So let me, let me try to relay this to you as best as possible um, in probably the worst way possible, but at least it may connect with you on some level. If you took two people to to eat at a buffet, right? But you take somebody who, who has a very small stomach and one who has a much bigger stomach. They are going to experience that buffet differently, but most likely both of them are going to leave very full and satisfied from that buffet, right? One may not have any room for the dessert bar when it's all said and done, right? Like they, they filled up very quickly on, on really good stuff, but did not have the capacity for more potentially. Whereas the other may have eaten multiple times and said, you know what, now I'm going to go to the dessert bar and get even more uh, satisfaction. That's how I've seen it and, and read about it from other guys who are way smarter than me. I don't know if that's fully accurate or not, but it does make sense in the fact that I don't think anybody gets to heaven and is disappointed based on rewards that are given out. Like I think that's a very dangerous place to be. Neither guy, neither person leaves that buffet saying, and I'm disappointed that I didn't get to eat as much as you did. Right? Like both of them leave saying, I don't know if I could ever eat again. Like I'm so full from that experience. Like both are very satisfied, but one is, is more full than the other based on his capacity. That's how I've heard it presented in a lot of the commentaries that I've looked at. Again, I don't know if that's the a, that's a best way to understand it, but I do think what we see in Scripture is that God will reward those who have been faithful, and I do think there's varying degrees of that reward which then translates into our experience in heaven. Again, nobody's disappointed. Everybody's full, but maybe to different levels of fullness, which I think, too, coincides with the punishment, right? Like, you can take a football practice, for example. You have a guy who's really out of shape and a guy who's in shape better, but both of them are huffing and puffing and worn out at the end of a summer football practice. One, it was a lot harder on him than the other, but both have experienced the difficulty of that practice. That may also be how we could think of it in terms of hell. Hell's not going to be enjoyable for anybody, no matter how little, little revelation they had, right? Their little revelation and their sin against that little revelation is enough to condemn them for hell for eternity. Nobody's enjoying hell, but for some it may be greater than others as far as the amount of commendation that, condemnation that comes from it. 
All right. All right. Number four, every unbeliever will be punished eternally. We'll kind of fly through this and wrap things up today. Um, eternal torment comes to the non-repenters. And the threat of this is certainly meant to motivate us to faith and right living. Uh, Jesus warns about the second death, encourages us to make good choices and decisions with the gospel today in light of the coming judgment. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 Um, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? The encouragement here is, man, if you're a believer, don't worry about somebody persecuting you to the point of death. Don't fret about being a martyr. Fret about being the individual who stands before God at the second death. Right? Don't fret about the first death. Right? Don't long to be 80, 90 years old and go in your sleep. And that's the only way you want to go. Man, if, it, if God calls you to be on the mission field and to die on a beach trying to get the gospel to an unreached people group, like that's not a bad way to go, right? Fear the one who, who brings about the second death is what Jesus says, all right? There's some alternate views that come out of Revelation 20. Um, universalism is the idea that everybody's going to be saved. There's two versions of universalism. The pluralistic universal, universalism would say, the Christian faith is one way to get to God and that God will honor other people's devout keeping of other ways to get to him. So other devout people of other religions, God may save. And so universalism from a pluralistic standpoint says Christian faith is one way that God allows people into heaven and, and there's many other ways as well. Christian universalism usually teaches that everybody has to come to faith in Jesus and Jesus will make sure that everybody does at some point, even if that means having to give them multiple chances in the afterlife to do so, right? The other alternate view is annihilationism, that basically when God judges, he judges unbelievers but destroys them in such a way that the punishment is permanent but the experience of it is not, that basically people just cease to exist, There are passages that people use to support this, but I want to tell you, we don't need to look at those because they only go to those passages because it starts with a mentality that says eternity in hell does not mesh with God's love or his justice. And once that thought is entertained, then people go looking for verses to validate that feeling, right? We've talked before. God is just, he is holy, and a sin and an offense against him is on such a grand scale that it deserves the greatest punishment, right? It certainly does not compromise his love because as we've seen through Revelation, the call to repentance has been extended throughout the world and people have continued to rebel and reject that repentance, okay? We should labor for that thorough judgment of works. Number three, rest in the eternal security of salvation. Salvation cannot be achieved by behavior, so for our, for our kids, if we're Christians, our salvation is eternal. Number one, salvation cannot be achieved by behavior. We can rest knowing that our behavior is not the criteria for salvation. Jesus' behavior is. Romans chapter 10, verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is the end of us having to work our way to heaven. Because we can't work our way to heaven, but Jesus earns righteousness for us. What we find in Revelation 20 is that if your name is not in the book of life, you spend eternity in hell. Nobody's deed account in the book of deeds is good enough for salvation. 
everybody falls short. Like nobody, nobody is allowed into heaven because of what's found in the book of deeds. The criteria given in Revelation 20 is your name has to be in the book of life. No matter how good the deeds are, the name is still required. Everybody falls short. Final judgment is not an occasion to undo the confidence of the believer. And we're going to come back and close with that. So I'm going to jump ahead and then we're going to come back to those points. Death cannot sting any longer. We can rest knowing that death and Hades are defeated forever. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Real similar to what we find in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Death's defeated forever. All right, application. Determine your fate today. This is the great thing is that we can know what judgment day will look like based on what we decide to do with information today. Isaiah chapter 55, verse six and seven. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. We can escape judgment today by responding and repenting. John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Right, we can escape condemnation today based on our response to Jesus. John chapter five, verse 24 also tells us this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. We can determine our fate today by responding to the gospel, by believing in the work of Jesus Christ, setting aside our good works, embracing the work of Christ. And then when we do that, we have a responsibility to demonstrate our faith today. We're to live like Matthew 25 calls us to, to be a sheep who is separated from the behavior of the goats. To demonstrate works, or to demonstrate our faith by the works that we do, according to James chapter 2, verse 18. Works become the evidence of who we truly are. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Proper motivation for us to live in such a way where we store our treasures properly. Read this quote to you by John Piper about the role of our deeds on Judgment Day. He says, Our deeds will reveal who enters the age to come, and our deeds will reveal the measure of our reward in the age to come. Our deeds will be the public evidence brought forth in Christ's courtroom to demonstrate that our faith is real. And our deeds will be the public evidence brought forth to demonstrate the varying measures of our obedience of faith. In other words, salvation is by faith and rewards are by faith. But the evidence of invisible faith in the judgment hall of Christ will be a transformed life. Our deeds are not the basis of our salvation. They are the evidence of our salvation. They are not our foundation, but they are our demonstration. I want want you to write these verses down if you're taking notes because these are the verses that I want you to kind of look up and meditate on as we leave today. 
it goes back to that point that I was making that our final judgment is not an occasion to undo the confidence of the believer, meaning we do not need to fear the day of judgment if we are a believer. We do not need to fear the aspects of having to give an account for the deeds that we've committed because Romans 8, 1 says there is no condemnation for the believer, right? So, so I think it's incorrect to, to view sitting in a movie theater and just sweat pouring down us as, as deed after deed is presented as though there's some type of fear there, right? Like I don't need to be uh, hesitant about the return of Jesus. Psalm chapter 103, verse 12 is one that I want you to write down. It's a passage that talks about when, when God forgives us of our sins, what does he do with them? He separates them as far as the east is from the west. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Isaiah 40, or Isaiah 38, 17 Isaiah 43:25 Hebrews 8:12 For I will be merciful towards your iniquities I will remember their sins no more 1 John 4:13 through 18 And then lastly 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Verse four says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, get this, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, I don't know exactly what this day looks like, but I know we read some of these and I've given you all of them that I've, that I've kind of gotten in my notes. These are all passages that talk about our lack of condemnation, our lack of guilt, God forgetting our sins, God removing our sins, God casting away our sins. I have a hard time reconciling those passages with my image of having to sit and watch sin after sin after sin put on display. I think ultimately what that day of judgment is for the believer, it's deed after deed after deed that is shown through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of Christ that demonstrates our faith and our genuineness because everything that I see in Scripture is that the believer should look forward to this day. The believer should not be hesitant. He should not shrink back. The Bible says we should love his appearing. He should, we should love it. We should look forward to it. We should long for it. We should look forward to the day where where our deeds are put on display to demonstrate that we are what we've claimed to be this whole time. We are a true follower of the Lamb wherever he goes. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We praise you and thank you for your goodness to us. We're thankful that when we stand before you on Judgment Day and those books are opened, that while we believe that through your Spirit's power there will be deeds to be highlighted in our life, that ultimately our salvation rests because our name is written in the other book, the book of the Lamb. We are thankful that it's Jesus' righteousness that will ultimately determine our salvation on that day, that it's Jesus' work that answers the great dilemma of the law and your demand for perfection. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that has not received Christ as their Savior, that they would see the urgency of that need today, that your return is imminent, that you are coming to bring judgment that you will judge every deed and that we will be found wanting 
if we think that our deeds are good enough to get us into eternity with you. Father, help us to instead, while today is still today, turn our faith and our heart's attention to you and repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in the work of Christ. Father, as as believers, I pray that we would continue to demonstrate our faith, the fact that we will be with you for eternity, that we would live like it today, that we would be faithful to separate ourselves from the things of this world and to live passionately for your glory. God, help us to communicate this urgency to others around us, that, that judgment is coming and that people can escape that judgment. We look forward to the day where the work that you've done through us can bring greater glory to you as it's put on display to others. Pray that that day would be full of great deeds and that you would accomplish even more in our life today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.